This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 712. This week, we welcome Dr. Bill Bonfleth for a show we're calling ASHRAE Control of Infectious Aerosol Standards and the future of IAQ standards after COVID. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, we have afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site, to continue the conversation. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Don Weeks, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, who was first to identify dying to be rich as the book written by Rainbow International founder, Don Dwyer Sr. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the author of this quotation. Great works are performed not by strength, but by perseverance. Back to you, Joe. Okay, Bill Bonfleth is a professor of architectural engineering at the Pennsylvania State University. He has a PhD in mechanical engineering and is a registered professional engineer he is the author or co-author of nearly 200 peer-reviewed publications and 14 books chapters. He is a past president of ASHRAE and was chair of the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force and currently chairs the project committee for the ASHRAE Standard 241 Control of Infectious Aerosols, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome back, Bill. Great to have you. Perfect to be here with you again. Always uh, enjoy it, whether I'm a guest or whether I'm listening in. Well, thank you. I, we appreciate your uh, support and uh, joining us so many times over the years. I think we kind of, there were about five of them now, so we're, we're on number six, I think. Uh, Bill, let's let's talk a little bit about this control of infectious aerosols uh, standard. And, and I think it's probably best to just let you have the, uh, have the floor here and put a couple slides up to kind of give people the why did we, you know, why did we need this standard? Uh, why was it started? Why it was important, and how you went about the process? Sure. Um, so I'll I'll show a few slides from one of my standard uh, talks here, and I know everybody came for a conversation, not a uh, a lecture. So I'll uh, I'll try to not spend too much time on this, and feel free to interrupt me if you want to uh, ask a question or make a comment. So you you've got them up now. Got it. All right. Like I called this this uh, presentation, making buildings a tool for improving public health, and I think that is really uh, what Standard 241 allows us to uh, to do. Uh, we'll jump right into it here. You ask why why do we um, need a, a standard like this? Well, certainly, I think we've learned in the last three years how much disruption we can have to society, to our personal lives. Uh, from airborne infections, and that wasn't shouldn't have been news, but uh, we we certainly recognize that now after COVID, uh, and we we also know that uh, the indoor environment contributes to risk. Most transmission occurs indoors, so it's affected by how we control the indoor 
environment, and uh, we don't have any IAQ standards right now that uh, address it directly, except for healthcare standards, our, our standards that are the basis of the building codes for residential buildings and commercial buildings uh, don't address uh, infection prevention. And this gives us an opportunity also to, to put into code language some of the things that we developed as recommendations in the epidemic task force and, and also to go back and revisit them and, and uh, clean up some of them. Uh, we need a standard like this because it's not clear whether we'll see a, a shift in 62.1 and 62.2 in the, the near future to adopt infection uh, risk mitigation, although the board specifically said when they uh, authorized the creation of 241 that that was the intent, was that the parts of 241 would be referenced in, in 62.1 and 62.2. And of course, there's also that uh, the White House asked for it piece uh, here as to, to why we did it uh, <laughs> yeah, with 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 them asking and you know could you have it in in four months to which the answer was no but we said we could do it in six we uh, we really had quite a uh, a fire drill to get this done basically between um uh, february and and june of this year i won't go through all the timeline here but uh, it all happened very rapidly and you know, thankfully uh, we we got a lot of uh nice comments on the, the the end product certainly it's not perfect and and it had to be streamlined in some ways but the white house was happy with it and generally the uh, the feedback on the first version is uh has been very good and i think it is an important public health intervention if we're able to get it into to use so that that's kind of the background Can I jump in for one second sure. what i'm just curious it's is this the first time you know, we've had the flu in 1917 that killed a lot of people. We've had some of the bird viruses, et cetera. Is this the first time that there was the push for a, a standard of this type through ASHRAE? Um, to my knowledge, an, an indoor air quality standard, it's, it's the, the first time. I think if you look for a similar level of interest in what ASHRAE was doing from the government, you'd have to go back to standard 90 for energy. So there was pretty close uh, coop coordination between ASHRAE and, and the government in those days. And actually, the National Bureau of Standards helped uh, develop the, the technical content for what became Standard 90, and then Congress uh, adopted it to be the uh, the basis for, for state codes. Personally, I'd like to see a similar thing happen in that the, the federal government would at least recommend a, a minimum uh, IAQ code that would apply nationwide that that could be 62-1 that's kind of another discussion maybe we can come around to that at the end what what happens sure. next sounds good the other thing that i might mention it might be of interest to some here is i think that that there's been a lot of uh, interest and in, in cooperation with standard 188 for uh, legionella risk mitigation um, uh, okay so should we go on here with an overview yep. of the standard um yep. so yeah, the, the, the purpose is very simply to establish requirements for control of infectious aerosols, these uh, things that uh, that transmit airborne diseases. And it applies to uh, all types of occupiable space, whether it's new or renovated or um, additions to, to buildings. And it's comprehensive. They're very similar to a standard like 62.1, design installation, commissioning operation, and maintenance. Uh, what it is not is an overall IAQ standard. So there's been some, I think, uh, misunderstanding of, by a few that uh, it replaces 62.1. It does uh, not actually, it references it. Um, and in terms of the risk assessment that was done to develop the standard, we based it on long range transmission. I don't wanna say that doesn't mean it will um, do anything for short range transmission, but that's uh, harder to predict. And so it, it is based on the ambient concentration in a space where uh, an infector has been present. So and, it, in that um, in that slide, the, the topic is infectious aerosols. Besides COVID, what are the other infectious aerosols that this was designed to help with? Uh, well, I, I suppose we could say that it was designed to... Uh, uh, to help with any infectious aerosol. And I think the argument amongst experts is which ones of, of them are actually airborne transmission. But I don't think there's any argument about measles being 
uh, airborne, it's a very serious one, tuberculosis transmitted through the air. Um, most, I think, today believe influenza is significantly airborne. So there's there's a whole host of them, but infectious disease experts uh, argue about whether um, close range contact is, is necessary uh, or whether we can have uh, aerosols stay around long enough with enough active uh, pathogen in them to cause a, an infection that we can control this way. Okay, that, that's very helpful, thank you. Sure. Um, so this slide shows the, the topics that are covered in the standards. So in a nutshell, we start with definitions and prerequisites, which you would expect, and then we go on to the uh, uh, what we call the equivalent clean airflow uh, definition and, and values. That's like your table 6.1 and standard 62.1 that gives you the outdoor air quantities that you work with to develop the requirements for a system. Uh, we have some uh, requirements for air distribution and natural ventilation, a lot on air cleaners. I think that's one of the important sections of the standard that's it's uh, pretty new and, and significant. And then we go from that to how do you assess and plan and implement a system that will help mitigate uh, infection risk. O&M, a few requirements for uh, individual dwelling units for uh, residences and then the, the appendices. So uh, quite a bit there, and uh, we'll try to give you an idea of the, the key things here. So prerequisite simply means um, uh, things that you, you have to do uh, at, at the outset. And because 241 only addresses infection risk, you've got to have some other standard to define what uh, base IAQ is, and, and that's 62162. 2.2 or 170 or equivalent approved by the authority having jurisdiction, uh, depending on what kind of facility it is. So th this, these standards will establish the minimum ventilation rate requirements, the minimum filtration requirements, and then 241 applies during what we call infection risk management mode when uh, there's a need for a higher level of protection. And I guess we should then move on to uh, the key definitions so that uh, we can touch on that. So here are a few terms that I want to um, define uh, at the outset of this discussion. So the, the first is long-range transmission, and that simply means that you're not standing within that uh, one to two meter radius of someone who's infected and where you could get a big dose of spray. And there's also aerosol there that can be controlled by engineering controls, but predicting risk within that um, radius is hard to do. So our uh, risk calculations were based on someone who's far away from the infector and is inhaling the average concentration in the space. Hmm. And infectious aerosols are um, respiratory droplets, the droplet residues. So we're always uh, emitting little droplets that we can't even see when we're exhaling and if we're sick then the pathogens that are in our system are getting into the mucus that forms those droplets whether it's viruses uh, influenza SARS-CoV-2 or tuberculosis bacilli and um, so uh, these are particles that are small enough they can stay in the air for uh, a long time and they can also be inhaled deeply into the respiratory system where the pathogens if they're still active can cause problems. And uh, I've talked about this a lot in my other presentations during the pandemic. There, there's a pretty wide range of particle sizes from quite large, 100 microns is about the largest we're really concerned about uh, being inhalable, and then all the way down to submicron particles. Uh, we talk about air cleaning in the standard, and air cleaning just refers generically to any uh, technology or control that will uh, remove or inactivate infectious aerosol. So that would include um, fibrous or mechanical filters. And when we say that in the standard, we, we didn't say uh, electrostatically charged, but we assume that that includes electret media, germicidal ultraviolet light, and, and, and any of the uh, reactive species air cleaners that are available, ionizers, photocatalytic oxidation, and others. Um, I want to emphasize that the fact that those words appear in the standard doesn't mean that these are endorsed technologies. We're simply listing off things that could be used. And 
uh, you'll see that there are requirements for testing in the standard. So uh, these are things that could be used, but you have to show that they work and that they're safe. Um, infection risk management mode, I, I mentioned before, this is simply uh, the term that we use to refer to when you are using the controls that are specified in uh, standard 241. So we have infection risk management mode, we have normal operation mode, and you could have shutdown for a typical building. And someone has to decide when uh, when you go into this mode, um, the, the title of my talk suggests that maybe there would be a, a public health connection. So if public health officials are monitoring uh, epidemiological data, if they're checking wastewater and they see something coming, they could say, you know, we've, we've got to put protections in place, just like uh, some places started uh, recommending that people go back to wearing masks. So we hope that will happen, uh, but it could also be the owner that decides when to do it. It could be the occupant, uh, would be the occupant if we're talking about a house. Um, why not do it all the time? Uh, there's potentially an energy consequence or at least a, a, a economic consequence of, of running systems. You might have to uh, replace filters and portable air cleaners more often. And really there's this pretty low risk a lot of the time for, for many pathogens. So uh, the idea is that, that uh, we set this up so that if you are really focused on, on saving energy and, and money that you don't have to do this all the time. It makes it easier to adopt. And I think what this does for the first time, very importantly, is bring the idea of resilience into indoor air quality standards um, in the same way that if we had uh, guidance on how you should design a building so that if there's a wildfire, it could go into a protective mode would be an example of, of resilience. I think that's something that uh, uh, ought to happen. Bill, before you move on, yeah. we, we had a text question uh, sure. wondering whether or not the slides are going to be available to the listeners. Um, I can can uh, give you these to post, sure. Okay, good enough. Yep. Thank you. Great. We'll uh, put them in the blog, Cliff. Okay, no problem. Good. Sure. Uh, I, I have a question while yeah. you're at it, Bill. Um, obviously, um, wildfire smoke is, is not an infectious aerosol, but it seems like that was thought about quite a bit while you were developing this. Is that accurate to say? Well, in, in the epidemic task force days, we had to, to think about it because we were, were having wildfires while we were at the same time trying to, uh, to increase the, the ventilation rates in some buildings, and that caused a, a problem. Um, we don't explicitly address uh, wildfire smoke control in this standard, but in parallel with what we're doing, ASHRAE is developing uh, a guideline, a number guideline 44. I can't quite remember its title verbatim, but it deals with uh, measures to, to mitigate uh, wildfire smoke and controlled burn um, air pollution. So I, I think it fits right in. And, and an important thing from my point of view is that some of the controls we would put in for infection risk management could be very helpful for smoke. I put a lot of portable air cleaners in my house during the first couple of years of, of COVID. They're little portable HEPA filter air cleaners and the, the wildfire smoke from Nova Scotia got down here during the, the summer and uh, they were very effective. You know, we were getting up towards 200 AQI outdoors and I was keeping it under 10 uh, micrograms per cubic meter of PM2 0.5 in the house with all of these things running. And we took one on vacation in Minnesota and we had to use it there. So, you know, the, the message is that if we put in a good particulate filtration systems as an infection risk mitigation measure, that those can help us in other ways as well. They're generally good for health because lower PM exposure is, is good. They help with infection risk and they also help if we've got a, an ambient air quality emergency. There's a, it would seem to me that the, someone that's being exposed to wildfire smoke may be even more susceptible when they are in an infectious aerosol type of environment. Has anybody, do you know anything about that? Uh, I I don't know uh, actually of, of any specific research that's shown that, but we know, for example, that smokers are are more susceptible to yeah. some respiratory diseases. So it can't be good to have your respiratory system stressed by uh, by a lot of PM from a wildfire at the same time that there's an infection going around. 
Let's keep All growing right. here. Yeah, let's let's go on. The, uh, the 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 next thing we want to mention is the building readiness plan. And those who've looked at uh, epidemic task force guidance, uh, the building readiness guidance, know that that kind of a plan was discussed there. And so we really lifted that from what we'd uh, invested two years of of time in developing and put that into the uh, into this standard. So the that uh, assessment planning and implementation section goes through the details of, of what you should check out in a building and then provides uh, guidance on how you can put that into a plan that documents what you found, documents what you decided you were going to do, and uh, other important information. So uh, that, that's what that is. And it's really the endpoint of, of the standard prior to uh, implementing it. <clears throat> and now this uh, uh, really important concept of equivalent clean airflow. So unlike uh, standard 62.x and 170 that are written around uh, outdoor air requirements, um, especially the 62s, uh, what we focus on in 241 is what we call equivalent clean airflow. And I've, I've written the definition from the standard verbatim there. Flow of pathogen-free air that if distributed uniformly within the breathing zone would have the same effect on infectious aerosol concentration as the sum of actual outdoor airflow, filtered airflow, and inactivation of infectious aerosol. So it's not just the outdoor air, it's the equivalent amount of outdoor air that would take to achieve the same reduction in, in exposure um, for whatever control you're using, whether it's a filter or whether it's UV or, or something else. So we specify uh, equivalent clean airflow per person. You use that in the zone population for uh, the type of space to get the, the total amount. And then in doing the assessment and planning, uh, you, you determine what you're going to do during infection risk management mode to, uh, to reach that target. While we're, while we're talking about this, um, you, you talked about the plan on the slide before and this equivalent clean airflow. Who who does who would be expected to do this? I mean, the, the typical facility maintenance guy, I don't I don't see them getting the building readiness plan or whatever. And then the equivalent clean airflow uh, figured out. And I'm just wondering. When you were writing the standard, um, what did the group think about who would actually help to implement this? Uh, well, I think it, it could um, could be people who are involved in facility management, depending on how far they they wanted to take it. Uh, when you do an assessment here, we're, we're talking about something that's really like a retro commissioning exercise. So uh, you'd, you'd want a an appropriate team that could go in and inspect the HVAC equipment and determine whether the the, the flows were uh, were correct, whether the right filters were being used, whether they were well installed, and, and other sorts of things. There are lots of checklists that you can find in the standard. Um, but, you know, if, if someone uh, who, who works at a facility um, opens it up to the, the table that, that gives the equivalent clean air per person, they can figure out what how much clean air they need in, in a space. And uh, if, if someone tells them what they've already got, they can buy a portable air cleaner that will will get them there. So there, there are some, I think, ways of of uh, implementing this that that don't take uh, a real high level of, of technical uh, expertise uh, and and others that do. So en engineers uh, would be good to have involved in in this exercise or or uh, people who are certified to do commissioning at that level. Okay. All right. So. So we've we've noted what the concept is here, and this is uh, a quick example of of equivalent clean airflow uh, comparing the effect of a filter in a space with uh, the equivalent amount of uncontaminated air. So let's say that the real control here is that I've got an air cleaner that's moving air at some uh, flow rate BRC through a filter with a, a given efficiency. And so that's removing contaminant from the space. I can replace this air cleaner with some flow rate of uncontaminated air, we'll call it VACS, which is equal to, to what the air cleaner is putting out. And it would give us the same concentration in both cases. 
So if I can go from the air cleaner in the space to an, an equivalent clean airflow, the ACS here for air cleaning system, then I could add that to the outdoor air. I could add that to what I estimate to be the effect of a UV device or some other kind of air cleaner and, and, and get a total. So it's really powerful because it allows us to mix and match uh, different controls to reach a target, which you, you can't really easily do with the IAQ standards that we have. This could be very useful also in 62.1 as a way of thinking about how you comply with the indoor air quality procedure. And I see a key variable there is the infectious aerosol concentration. How do we establish that? Well, I, you know, the the concentration uh, is is something we we uh, don't deal with directly very much. We we, we know that that uh, when someone's exhaling, there's going to be uh, active virus or bacteria in in those particles, but there's a wide range of uh, emission rates. And and then when someone's exposed to it, there's a, an infectious dose and that's distributed as well. So the way that we've talked about this for a long time has been, from a practical point of view, is mainly in terms of infectious quanta that are used in the Wells-Riley model. So an infectious quantum is an infectious dose. We don't actually say or, or necessarily know how many uh, active viruses are in the dose or how many that uh, uh, someone who's infected is, is emitting, that we, we boil it down to that. So when we do the risk calculations to determine what the, the equivalent clean air flows need to be, the concentration of infectious quanta is in that calculation. But to apply the standard, you don't need to know that because that's already been done for you in, in determining the, uh, the, the, the clean air requirements. Okay, thank you. So do you want me to go on even uh, farther here? We can talk about yeah, this. Well, I think there was, there was one more we wanted to show, and then we'll be right up at halftime. We'll get into some questions from there. Okay, yeah, I think this is a good thing to talk about since we've just kind of started into this, is is the risk assessment that we did to come up with the uh, quanta values, uh, with the, uh, the, the flow values that are in the standard. So th this slide lists a lot more... Um, of the, the things we have to think about that I have time to discuss, but it gives you an idea of how complex it is to try to do a, a quantitative risk assess, assessment. Or are we going to have absolute or relative risk? We're going to reduce your risk by 50% or we're going to reduce your risk to uh, 1%. Uh, what is an acceptable risk level? We have to know what that is to get the values that go into the standard. And then all these other things that go into the scenarios, how long, what activity is going on, and with many of these variables being distributed, we, we need to have a probabilistic calculation. So we do Monte Carlo simulation where we pick different combinations of, of parameters randomly, essentially, and run a lot of simulations. So we get a, a risk of infection with a, con with a confidence interval. So like 95% of the time, we, we'll have this level of, of risk or lower. So that was really quite a bit of work. And I think it was a really uh, uh, unique and important development that uh, the committee did. Uh, there's a, an appendix in the standard that says a little bit about this process. And the, the figure here is a, a zhuzhed up version of, of that figure. We've added some color to make it easier to read. But so we used the Wells-Riley model uh, based on quanta, as I noted before. And um, uh, our, our target was a low individual risk per hour. So for a person in the room, it, their, their risk is low. And we set that to the same value for every space. Uh, and what we're trying to get in the end is equivalent clean air flow per person, which is the, the unit that uh, is actually proportional to individual risk. So we've, we've got to, to set a lot of values in the, the scenario, uh, what's going on. So breathing rate, uh, the time of exposure, uh, quantum emission rate. And also for each individual, you've got a lot of variables that uh, are, are personal. Um, the boxes here, not the, the red ones show things that were all related to uh, SARS-CoV-2. So the standard was was based on what we knew about SARS-CoV-2 because it was a pretty extreme pathogen 
but uh, it's applicable to other things. And that's something we can work on in the future. But the uh, quantum emission rates and all that sort of stuff was for SARS-CoV-2. Um, we get pretty big numbers. Um, they, they, they range, I think, to, to as high as 90 CFM per person, which is uh, a lot. But uh, the, the way the standard is written, you don't have to assume design occupancy. Part of your applying the standard could be that you'll limit occupancy in, in some way. So we, we take the, the value for the, the space and multiply it by whatever we want the infection risk management mode population to be, and that gives us a total. And if we don't like that total, we can change the population until we get something that we can actually do. Right now, there are 25 space types that are covered, and, and the range is uh, 20 to 90 CFM per person. This is the whole table that's there right now. Um, this should make people feel good that these are, are levels that would be pretty protective, but it also might make some people feel uncomfortable because some of these would be pretty hard to um, attain. It's a classroom, 40 CFM per person. That works out to about 10 and a half air changes per hour. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's much higher than the kinds of recommendations that were made before. Um, and, and office space, 30 CFM per person. That's only about two air changes per hour because much lower density in in an office space. And then something like a, a restaurant, food and beverage facilities, uh, 60 CFM per person. If you take normal uh, restaurant density, that could get you to 30 or 40 um, air changes, which you know is, is a, the kind of thing that uh, suggests that maybe you need to cut back the uh, uh, the occupancy of the space when there's a serious infection going around, but all based on COVID, of course. So it looks like- didn't you have a slide that kind of compared this to 62.1 ventilation? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was kind of talking my my way through this. But, um, uh, this is is the comparison. So in the upper table here, um, we've got um, the data for three different types of spaces from standard 62.1, office, classroom, <clears throat> and restaur uh, restaurant, and the comparison is down here at the bottom. So if you took the default occupant density for each of those space types from 62.1, uh, it would work out to 10 CFM per person of, of outdoor air for the restaurant, 13 for the classroom, and 17 for the office. Um, when we look at the uh, ECAI values, that gives us everything from, from 1 to 31 and a half air changes per hour, but it's equivalent clean air. We have to remember that's not all outdoor air. So the only thing you have to do according to 241 is provide this much outdoor air because that's that's what those standards say. And, and everything above that, you can get with air filters or with air cleaners. That, that, that helps. That's very helpful. Let's stop for a minute. We're going to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with the second half of our show with Bill Bonflet. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org. AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters, 
developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Bill Bonfleth. We're talking about ASHRAE 241, control of infectious aerosols, and a little bit about the future of IAQ standards after COVID. Bill, I think one of the areas that has um, been kind of new and is a big change is the development of the air cleaner portion um, of, of this standard. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how how kind of new that is and kind of uh, a big challenge that you had there and and um, how you think it's going along. Sure. Um, it, well, it's absolutely uh, critical to uh, be able to say how air cleaners perform and whether they're safe in order for them to be used. You know, we're, we're not trying to promote the use of air cleaners in the standard, but we're certainly uh, trying to enable it if it makes sense to use them. So you have to have performance tests and you have to have safety tests. And, and if we look around at uh, the kinds of standards that were available for testing air cleaners prior to COVID, there really weren't very many. We, we uh, have uh, ASHRAE standards 185.1 and 2 that were a start on, on UV standards, but did really not uh, uh, enough there. We have 52.2 for, for filters that uh, is, is actually the, a, a good standard, effective. And for a lot of other air cleaner types that we've talked about, ionizers, et cetera, um, really nothing very useful on the um, performance side. And, and for safety, about the only thing that we've been checking is ozone. Uh, do they produce ozone or not? And, and we now know that uh, uh, we need to be concerned about the things that ozone interacts with and the secondary contaminants that are produced and also the secondary contaminants produced by some of the air cleaners th themselves. So there's photo, um, uh, photolytic uh, byproduct generation from UV that uh, needs to be considered and, and uh, photocatalytic oxidation produces byproducts. So, so what we had to come up with in the standard was procedures that could be used um, in this environment in which we don't yet have all of the standards that we want. So uh, we require some laboratory testing for all air cleaners, uh, chamber tests for things that work in chambers, single pass tests for uh, devices that can be characterized by their single pass performance. And, and those are, are all based on um, MS2 for uh, inactivation of, of microorganisms. And that, that procedure is described in a normative appendix of the standards, normative appendix, a, and it's similar to what's coming along in um, in standard 185.3 and 185.5, but we kind of blew by them with our streamlined standards development process. They were under development when we started, and they were still under development when we finished, but 185.3 is, is close to being published. Um, likewise, we didn't have a specific citable a byproduct standard, but we've put requirements in to test for ozone and formaldehyde and for fine particle generation. I think there are going to be a lot of things coming along in the next few years that we'll be able to cite and we'll be able to, to perhaps uh, take some of the information that we had to make up to put in the normative appendix uh, out. Let me make sure I give you a chance to jump in here if you had a question. Thanks. Um, you know, beginning with the end in mind, Bill, uh, was the standard meant for design for new construction, for retrofitting existing construction? Uh, no, the scope in, includes retrofitting, of course, just as in any other uh, uh, redesign for an existing building. You just have more constraints than, than you do if you're starting with a, a clean a computer screen. I was going to say clean sheet of paper, but who does that anymore? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it can be used in an existing building, but uh, you'd you'd have uh, more limitations. You know, you, you've got the, the 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 fan you bought and the the filter racks you put in, and the amount of outdoor air that you designed your heating and cooling system for. So that may affect your ability to upgrade central filters, and it may 
affect your ability to increase outdoor air if that's what you want to do. So that drives you in the, the direction of uh, thinking about, about air cleaners. Either portable or in-room, I mean, they, they can be fixed. If, uh, an air cleaner used in the room doesn't have to be something that can be picked up and carried away. It could be installed in the ceiling, like some of the things that we used to do for uh, tobacco smoke when we were still allowing smoking in public buildings. Yeah, they still do a little of that, like up the road here. They've got a little bar, a cigar bar, and they they put some air cleaners in there. I don't know how much help it it gives them, but yeah. it's something. Now, with that, air- I, I, I do I have to say that it, you know indoor air quality is is really all about existing buildings. The only the only buildings that are causing us harm are existing ones that we're in. So you know that that, that makes the operation and maintenance part of the standard really important, and that's an area where we. We don't really have good standards either. Maybe we can come around to that a little bit later. Yeah, I, I know. I, I remember a long time ago, we did a show with uh, uh, Bob Baker on a maintenance mm-hmm. HVA, maintenance standard that Ashray put together. But that's that's been a long time. And um, it was it was a good you know checklist of things to look at, but I'm sure it could could be updated. Let, let's talk a little bit about that air cleaner portion again. I've seen some, I don't know, you know, some questions. And I, I think there's there's areas that you've seen as well that you know you need to kind of work on a little bit with the air cleaner standard. What kind of concerns have people expressed? Well, uh, you know, the concerns that uh, we've been hearing for years, which is, is some manufacturers will, will always uh, ask, raise questions about, exactly how a test is done and, and uh, uh, perhaps suggest that that's not fair or representative for, for their equipment. So we, we have to, to deal with those sorts of issues. Um, uh, just finding tests for all of the different technologies that are available is a bit of a challenge. But I think one of the, uh, the, the key ones is scalability. Uh, right now, what we put into the standard is a requirement for uh, laboratory testing. So I think the chamber has to be uh, at least 800 cubic feet, if I'm remembering correctly. There's a lot of tests have been done by manufacturers in, in shoeboxes, and those are very unrepresentative of, of what would happen in a, a full-sized space. But even when you do that, you know, you've got, got uh, problems scaling from, from that to something else, not necessarily for uh, filters, if you're using them or a, a a portable air cleaner with a filter in it, but I'm thinking about things like uh, uh, PCO and ionization and UV, where you distribute something in the space and it, it has an effect. So I've, I've got a, a piece of equipment that produces a, a disinfectant and I test it in, um, in a, a moderately large size chamber. What happens when I put that in a much larger room? Do I uh, take the clean air delivery rate that I calculated in the chamber and say that's all you get in this other space, or should we be able to um, to scale if it has the ability to produce a higher level of output to the other space? You know, with with UV, um, if we did an upper room UV system and we establish a certain uh, UV uh, fluence rate in in the the disinfection zone, that's going to give us one clean air delivery rate in in uh, the test chamber, but if we put in a much larger space and we establish the same fluence rate, then then we should get a higher clean air delivery rate. What we've been hearing for years from those who've studied this, Harvard and 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 others, um, is that uh, at the the rates that are recommended by NIOSH for tuberculosis, you get the equivalent of of uh, maybe twenty air changes per hour. So you know, that that's a number you can take from one space to another. Uh, of course, you know, that, that's what we need to put in the standard, but where we need some help is that we do not have that kind of dose response data for all of the agents. So uh, we know well from a lot of, uh, of experimental work over a long time, the dose response of lots of microorganisms to, to UV. I don't have uh, available for my own use uh, a relationship, let's say, between... Uh, negative ion density and disinfection rate of, uh, of air in a, a room. If, I, if we had that, then we could, could do the scaling. So I, I think that that's really uh, one of the toughest issues. And, and I, another hard one is, is, well, what is the right environment to test byproduct um, formation? And I, I'm 
uh, reposing a lot of hope in a, uh, a new ASTM standard that's uh, under development. It's uh, you know, currently just a, uh, a work item, but it's uh, developing a, a test procedure and a cocktail of chemicals, and it, it could be a standardized test for byproduct uh, production that we could reference in, in 241 eventually. It's, uh, what is this thing called? WK81750. Looks like, I, I think another issue with testing these air cleaners is the indoor airflow patterns and air distribution, which, thank you, Keyshore, for that comment, are also important factors to be considered. Um, can you oh, talk that's, about That's right. I mean, we're talking about air cleaners, but this this takes us back to the other uh, less developed section of the standard, which is air distribution. And I think there are a lot of things that we need to uh, add that, that have to do with uh, how the the effectiveness of the clean air delivery is is impacted by air distribution. Um, you know, Kishore and I have, have collaborated on some work where he's done CFD that, that shows the effects of placement of, of air inlets and outlets and and, and furniture. My, my postdoc and I have done some work and we, we found a, a factor of two difference in the equivalent air change rate for an upper room UV system, depending on whether we had displacement or overhead mixing. So there, there are a lot of, of things like that that we need to, to look at. Um, but we couldn't just lift things from standard 62 and put them into 241 because, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, really the implication of, of 62.1 that stratified Air distribution is better than than mixed. You you get a, a credit for having stratified air distribution. But uh, as I just said, if we mix up a space where we've got UV from the point of view of, of pathogen control, it's much better when it's mixed than than when it's stratified. So those are the kinds of discussions that we're engaged in now and, and trying to figure out what we can add to the standard to that's defensible. So we're where do we go in the future, both with this standard and in, in general, Bill? I mean, how, how do you see this standard being implemented? Um, well, in the uh, implemented is is one thing, and and um, and how it might be modified to be more useful is is the other. Um, certainly, we would like to see it being adopted um, as the, a guide to what you do to be prepared for a serious infectious disease outbreak, and we've we've talked to, to many organizations that are interested. It's only been three months since it was published, so it's a little bit asking a little bit much that it's already been adopted. But there, there is interest from government agencies and from um, uh, well-building um, uh, organizations that, that have uh, protocols for rating buildings. So I, uh, there's at least one state that is, is working on implementing it. So I, I think that the, uh, the implementation will come, especially if we can clean up uh, a few of the items that are still on our work plan that are important. Uh, and, you know, that, that's why I, I said that they, they kind of go together. So right now we have this uh, uh, set of recommendations for equivalent clean air that are based on on uh, SARS-CoV-2, basically on, on COVID-19. Uh, what if we want to have uh, recommendations that would be more appropriate for uh, an endemic seasonal influenza outbreak, uh, or or for uh, some other pathogen, or if we want to use a different level of uh, acceptable risk than we used in developing those numbers. So I, I kind of see, and this is just me talking, not the committee. Uh, I, I see this perhaps going in the direction of of having a tool where you can can customize it quite a bit. And the thing that comes to mind is the uh, a thermal comfort tool that goes along with ASHRAE standard 55, where you can put in your own parameters and essentially develop a custom um, target for, for comfort. We, we could have a, a software version of the risk assessment in the standard that would allow you to get custom equivalent clean air amounts for whatever you were concerned about. And that would probably be a better tool for public health uh, officials to use. Okay, let's go to the roundup, John. Let's, uh, Cliff, let me turn it over to you for any questions you might have. Um, 
I guess just one question, getting back to devices, Bill, mm -hmm. uh, any experience with, with these hydroxyl generators at all? Uh, well, I mean, that that's you know, one of the things that the PCO uh, uh, produces. So, yes, actually, and I, I work with someone who was involved with a major manufacturer that commercialized PCO 20 years ago. Uh, the main problem with with them is that uh, they uh, produce byproducts that um, we're, we're not entirely sure are are safe. And actually, when that company uh, decided to stop developing that technology, that was what they said for indoor air quality applications until we resolve these issues about secondary uh, contaminant generation, it really isn't suitable. And th there were also technology problems that I think to some extent have been solved, which was that the, uh, uh, the catalysts would become contaminated too quickly, and then uh, you wouldn't be getting the uh, the PCO that you, you thought you were getting. Uh, no, the reason uh, that I asked it, you know, in, in regards to the wildfire stuff, uh, there are a couple of manufacturers that, that tout this stuff uh, in terms of odor removal and wildfires. And, yeah. you know, the one thing that they insist is that they're safe and so on and so forth. And it's, it's caused a significant amount of uh, controversy. And, yeah. you know, uh, the, the only way to end these discussions is to have tests that everyone understood. on consensus tests. But, you know, I think for wildfire smoke, yes, the odors maybe are a, a nuisance, but that every source I read says that really the, if you've taken care of the particles, if you remove the particles from the air, uh, effectively, you've handled most of the risk. Right. What other standards, guidelines, et cetera, um, are in the pipeline that, that you can talk to listeners about? Or what are, what are some of the kind of things that you're looking toward for the future of indoor air quality? Uh, well, for the future of indoor air quality, certainly I'd like to see our... our um, baseline IAQ standards actually um, uh, provide some requirements related to infection transmission. I, I never really wanted 241 to have to be a, a long-term um, standalone standard. Um, I would be very happy if if uh, the committees that write 62.1 and 62.2 took um, uh, health on board and, and uh, we could go away. Uh, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen soon. Uh, I'd like to see the equivalent clean air uh, approach that we've um, developed in 241 be applied in the other standards. And I'd like to see them add more about air cleaners. Right now, if you go to 62.1, uh, 62.2, all they talk about is is ozone. So, you know, I think we have a lot of material here that could be referenced in, in those standards. But those are existing standards. Uh, I don't know that we really need uh, new ones, except on the uh, the air cleaner testing side, I, uh, the the ASTM standard that I mentioned, I think is going to be an important one when it gets finished. And uh, you know, during the the pandemic, uh, AHAM came out with uh, AC five, I think it is, which is a bioaerosol test standard for for uh, portable air cleaners. And we need to get one eighty five point three and one eighty five point five finished so we'll have the full complement of chamber tests um, for ASHRAE uh, to use in, in this standard. And then do we need a standard for scaling? I don't know if that's a standard or if that's a research project, but um, uh, that may be worthy of a standard. How do you take lab results and, and uh, adjust them to uh, an arbitrary application or a somewhat arbitrary application? What about uh, regulations? I, I know you and I talked a little bit about that model indoor air quality uh, rule or regulation that uh, John Hopkins put together. Any comments on that? Well, I, I think that uh, we've seen from what's happened with energy that the state and municipal action tends to be quicker and more effective than than federal action. So I think Johns Hopkins was was uh, on point in developing a a model state indoor air quality act and there are actually a number of states that are already talking about such bills uh, illinois new mexico massachusetts uh, city of new york is considering um, bills a lot of these laws um, uh, address 
not only actual mo modifications to systems, but they also require collection and reporting of, of data. So you can disclosure to the occupants and, and to um, the authorities. And, and I think um, for that reason, these laws are, are needed and, and really important because we have a vacuum where operational indoor air quality is um, is concerned. We've got standards that tell us what we have to do when we design a building so that the day you flip the switch, uh, it, it meets requirements, but there's really nothing after that. And we can, we, we found out during the pandemic, anybody who had a big portfolio of buildings and went out and checked them all to see how the ventilation was doing, that uh, in many cases it wasn't doing very well. Um, and we already knew that from the GAO schools report that came out at about the time the pandemic started. So I really think that in, in regulations, uh, having uh, regulations that relate to operation uh, are, and, and disclosure are critical in the future. You know, the biggest landlord in the country, I believe, is the GSA. Um, have you talked with them about somehow incorporating this standard into their uh, portfolio? Well, not since yesterday. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they certainly came to mind as one of the, uh, the big landlords. And if to go back to the discussion about how do we get this implemented, I think what you need to find is an organization that's willing to lead. Um, and so if, if GSA would pick this up and, and there are signs that they uh, are going to consider it at least and, and uh, test drive it, uh, that would really be helpful in, in getting uh, other authorities to adopt in the state and, uh, and local level. So that, that would be a big win if we could get it. But also, you know, if, if uh, some of the organizations that are in, um, in uh, wellness um, standards would, would uh, look at it, fit well, uh, IWBI, um, I think that would be helpful also. What about the military? I mean, uh, they have kind of unique circumstances. They have to keep their guy, their their people as healthy as possible when you've got to respond in a quick way. And they've got these, you know, submarines and boats and all kinds of different uh, types of environments that their people are staying in. Have you had any discussions with them or do you know if they're looking at? Well, we haven't gotten to them yet, but that's obviously something on my mind because I used to be a civilian employee of the Corps of Engineers. I worked at Construction Engineering Research Laboratory in, in Champaign, Illinois at one time. So, yeah, I think that's that's another place. You know, I think HUD is probably someone we could could talk to. Uh, you know, I'm uh, looking for any good ideas or contacts that could be made in, in that way. The VA, uh, for example, yeah. medical centers, another possibility. Bill, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Um, anything we missed? Anything you'd like to add? A, a kind of a summary wrap up? Uh, well, I, I don't think we've um, missed very much. I think I would just like to, to say, you know, wrapping it up, that uh, uh, 241, I think, is, is a, a good start. It's uh, probably less complicated than, than uh, people think, and, and I hope that they'll actually uh, have a look at it and uh, think about using it because it has a lot of uh, ideas in it that I think are are, are really uh, uh, kind of game-changing ideas for indoor air quality. And we hope that this uh, adds further momentum to the uh, uh, movement to have better indoor air quality in buildings. And maybe that's the last thing I'd like to say is that uh, think of 241 as just being one aspect of uh, addressing the needs that we have to improve indoor air quality in buildings. I think that uh, uh, we need to, to be looking across the board at all of the effects that indoor environment has on people and not just at uh, infection risk mitigation. Well, I want to thank you personally for joining us today, but also for I, I know you put a ton of time into this and um, your, your numerous volunteer activities uh, have, have, have got to be rough, but you obviously believe in what you're doing. And um, I think you're helping to make things better for people. So thanks for my, uh, my perspective anyway, for all you're doing. Thank you very much. And I'll also accept on behalf of a lot of people on the, the, the uh, 241 committee who uh, worked incredibly hard over uh, six months to get it out the door in June. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, do you have a ballpark idea how many hours people put in over six months? Well, I, I know I put in 400 on top of my normal job. So and that's... So it was it was a bit. <laughs> a bit. A little more than an IIC or Z standard, huh, Cliff? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know, 
<laughs> or, or these go for years. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those weekly four-hour meetings for a year, they're, they're killers. But uh, I want to thank Bill, Dr. Bill Bonfleth for joining us today. Always great to see you. Thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing loyal audience and uh, sponsors, we appreciate you all. Next week, we're going to do a flashback. I will be at the National Academy of Sciences, Chemistry of the Indoor Environments, uh event that's going down in dc i want to get on there and report for you and uh tell people what's going on with that when we come back two weeks from now we're going to have uh rich corsi on and uh jim rosenthal the corsi rosenthal folks we're going to talk about their air cleaner and uh, a little bit about what's going on with current events in the indoor air quality world so please come back and join us next week for the next episode of iaq radio plus For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.